I don't want everybody in the world to stop when they hit that line. I want them to recognize that line and, and, and be able to make a decision. Okay, look, at this point, I can choose to cross it, in which case I'm going to need this other set of skills. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one. You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting. Like Eric Wan, 18 months before he took Zoom public. We got to grow faster. Minimum is 100% over the past several years. Or bootstrap founders like Vivek of Question Pro. When I started the company, it was not cool to raise. Or Looker CEO Frank Bean before Google acquired his company for $2.6 billion. We want to see a real pervasive data culture, and then the rest flows behind that. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. There, you'll find a private RSS feed that you can add to your favorite podcast listening tool, along with other subscriber-only content. Now look, I never want money to be the reason you can't listen to episodes. On the checkout page, you'll see an option to request free access. I grant 100% of those requests, no questions asked. Hey guys, my guest today is Jim McKelvey. He founded his first company, Mira, back when he was 25 years old. Found Third Degree Glass Factory in 2002, ultimately probably best known for co-founding Square in 2008, before now jumping into new endeavors to do good like launch code and ideally save journalism via Invisibly. Uh, He was appointed also as an independent director of the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis in January of 2017, has a new book out, called The Innovation Stack. We're going to jump into it today. Jim McKelvey, you ready to take us to the top? Yeah, Nathan, let's go. All right. I just checked Square. Now, I'm a money guy, but I don't like only focusing on money. So check this out. Square today is a $76 billion market cap company, but it maybe never would have happened if it wasn't for a double twist, glass faucet, dusty piece of artwork you put together where a little old lady couldn't pay because she only had an American Express card. Take us back. Take us back to glass bowing. That is actually true. Um, so Jack Dorsey and I, who had been friends for years and worked together on another company that actually I still own, um, he and I were going to start a new company. We didn't have an idea. Uh, I'm a glass blower, so I work in a grubby studio and I sell stuff that nobody needs. And one day uh, when we were in the middle of starting this new company, I lost a sale because I couldn't take an American Express card. And it was for a double twist, uh, yellow orange glass faucet, which in my opinion was hideous, but this lady seemed to like it. And I really wanted to sell this thing and she wanted to buy it, but uh, couldn't because I couldn't process her card. So that was the idea that led to Square. I want to uncover a bit of this backstory here because when you look at successful entrepreneurs, it's almost always some sort of weird, interesting thing they did in college or childhood that like propelled everything else. A lot of people credit sort of Max font design to a calligraphy course Steve Jobs took when he was growing up. You're entering college, I believe born 1965. You're entering college in 83, 17, 18 years old. You're scanning down, I think every college student does this, you're scanning down all the extracurricular courses you have to sort of check off and glass blowing checks your eye or catches your eye. Why? Uh, so that was senior year and I had I was doing a dual degree. So I, I crammed five years of study into four years. And so I had almost no free time in my schedule. And it wasn't until my senior year of college that I actually could take a fun class. And I was looking for a blow off class. And I was literally going through the catalog and saw glass blowing. And I thought, oh, well, this is the perfect <laughs> blow off class because of the you know, sort of bad pun there. And it turned out to be this captivating thing. I, so I went into the glass studio and hot glass is just this mesmerizing substance. Like it's moving, it's glowing, it's sort of dangerous. You can't touch it. And there are all these sort of weird rules that apply to the physics of glass. And I just got really captivated by this. And then after I graduated, I needed a way to earn money. And at the time, they weren't hiring, uh, you know, economists with computer science degrees. So I decided that I would make a living selling my work. And it turns out that, uh, at least in the late 80s, you can make a pretty good living as a glassblower. So that's how I fed myself. Do you remember after, you know, I guess it was 1987, 88? I mean, how much money did you make in a year selling your glassblowing work? Oh, you know, 50 to 
75, maybe a hundred thousand bucks. Oh my I mean, gosh. it was, it was a pretty good deal. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, I mean, it was pretty good. I was not burdened by, you know, any artistic training. So I didn't believe like, I, I wasn't trying to be an artist. I was trying to make money. So I would, uh, you know, take any commission that I was given. And at the time there weren't many glass artists. So, um, the, the modern glass movement traces its way back to, you know, only the late fifties and early sixties. That's when the world basically invented small glass furnaces before that glass was always done in factories. And so, although we've had the technology for two millennia, the ability for artists to work independently is only 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And I caught that at about 20 years into the growth cycle. And so there was no competition when I started. So I made a very good living as a glass artist and, and still do today. Like I could literally live off my studio earnings. Uh, well, maybe not the way I live right now, but you know, could certainly feed the family. <laughs> Okay, so take us through that, right? Why stop that in 89 and, and start dealing instead of atoms? You start coding and dealing in bits building Mira. Well, so I was doing both. So I was working during the days for IBM. I was working on the side with another business and I was blowing glass. And then, um, you know, sort of tragically, uh, uh, my life was sort of derailed by my mother uh, who, uh, you know, my, my, mom, my mom killed herself. And, and this really just, devastated me. And when that happened, I looked at all the stuff that I was mediocre at. And there was a long list of, I mean, like I'm really sort of mediocre at a lot of stuff. And I was a mediocre IBM employee. I was a mediocre uh, entrepreneur. I was a mediocre artist. And I thought, wow, my mother never saw me do anything well. So I thought, well, I will, I will focus, right? That's the idea. You know, if you want to do something well, focus. And I sort of naively thought that by stopping everything I was doing and focusing on something new. So I quit glass blowing for a couple, eh, about a year, uh, sold my other company, uh, quit IBM. And then I focused on this company, Mira. And Mira is still around today. So it's endured for 30 years, but it was uh, anything but successful for the first five years. Uh, we kept getting just battered. Um, and then during that time, in order to fund my company, I went back into the studio at night and just started making work. So Glass was actually my venture capital as I was starting my tech company because, you know, that was the early 90s. And at least in St. Louis, Missouri, there was no such thing as venture capital, <laughs> at least not for me. So it was just, it was just necessity. And, and not to focus too much on this, but why did you have the belief that that your mom never saw you really go deep onto something. I mean, you tell a fascinating story in the book, how you're not, you don't have an engineering background, but professors and the head of the CS department are selling overcharged books where when you read them, they don't even work. And you go in, not only do you petition to get a different book in its place, you write the book, the debugger's handbook, UCSD and Apple Pascal, which then became the selling book there. I mean, that requires a level of obsession and expertise that is way above mediocre. Well, I mean, I'm stubborn. Uh, it turns out writing a textbook, at least a textbook on computer science, doesn't take that much knowledge. It just takes perseverance. I mean, you can look up every answer you need, and eventually I did. It took me a whole summer. I wrote this book. Uh, the book actually did pretty well, and then uh, the publisher asked me for another book, and that book actually did really well. And so I ended up yeah, look, I had some successes. I'm not saying I was, you know, was total blank slate by, by the time mom died, but I was really unfocused. And I thought that this was a problem because I was, I was always trying to copy the people around me and the successful people that I saw were doing one thing. Uh, it turns out for me, doing one thing is not a good thing. Uh, I, I seem to be better um, if I'm sort of dividing my attention around you know three or four different activities. And that's just always been true. But that's just a quirk of how I work, not you know, something that I would recommend for others. And we're going to get to this, but ultimately when the big guy came after Square, which was Amazon, you credit a lot of the success of you fighting off Square to doing nothing because you guys had so much of your innovation stack built. Amazon had to copy like 14 things instead of one. So you, you perfect this. We'll loop back to that in a second, but I want to go back to a young mother who ran a coffee shop in your town who had a son and you are now, I believe, 25. It's 1989. You're building Mira. And this son somehow ended up in your office, I guess, looking for a job. Explain who this person was and how he ended up at your Mira office. Yeah. So uh, Marsha was uh, a lady who ran a coffee shop in the neighborhood. And uh, she sold us chocolate-covered espresso beans, 
which were a good way to stay awake before Ritalin was widely available. <laughs> um, and so what uh, we would buy bags of this stuff. And of course, the conversation, like, what are you doing with all these things? Uh, and uh, we you know, told her that we were you know, a small tech company in St. Louis. And she's like, oh, my son loves computers. I was like, great, we need help uh, if he wants to come by. Um, and uh, this kid who was 15 years old showed up in the middle of this crisis. Like we just made a major mistake and uh, needed like everybody we knew uh, to come in and help us fix this, this problem. And uh, that was Jack Dorsey. So Jack came in uh, I hired him on the spot when he was 15. He worked uh, all night with us the first night, got in horrible trouble with his mother. Um, but he became part of the team after that and you know, joined us for that summer. And uh, we just had a great working relationship. He was one of these people who every time I gave him a task, he would do it well and, and in many cases, surprisingly well. And I just started noticing this trend and I thought, well, I wonder how he would do on these other tasks. So I kept giving him bigger and bigger jobs and he kept doing them up until the point where I gave him a job that was too big for one person to handle. And he said, Jim, I don't think I can do this. And I said, oh, no, no, you don't need to do all the work. I'll hire a team to do the work. I want you to run the team. So Jack actually was a manager by the time, I guess he was 16 years old. That's fascinating. So Mira started as a digital document viewer. Jack comes in. That's how that connection started. I think you then pivot the business in 93 to basically a CD-ROM interface for brochures. Was that the project that he was in charge of sort of turning around? What was the first big project you gave Jack where he was managing people? Uh, so that was a side project. Um, what our business was back before the internet was we would take uh, trade show literature, scan it and put on CD-ROMs. So we would give these CD away, CDs away at the trade show. And if you can imagine not having the internet, like having a trade show disc with all the brochures from the company uh, or from, from all the companies in the industry, that's a really valuable thing. And so we were making gobs of money with that product and uh, growing like crazy. But the internet was going to kill it. And I knew that our business was going to get just obliterated. And so I tried to get the company to pivot to another line of business, which was essentially trade show publishing, because trade shows always have you know conferences that go along with them. And the conferences need digital publishing tools, too. And we had all that tech. And I thought, well, we'll just use this and sell that. And everybody at the company would verbally agree with me, but I couldn't get them to change their behavior because they were making so much money using the old models that none of them could, you know, I mean, none, I couldn't get any of them to, to, to move. And so uh, this probably speaks to, you know, my quality as a leader. Uh, they did not follow me except for the intern, like the intern who was 15 years old and probably didn't know better. He listened to me. So Jack and I literally went off by ourselves and rebuilt the company. And then when the internet as I predicted, wiped out our core business. We already had this other company that Jack and I had built. And so the company survived. And as a matter of fact, this, the tech that Jack and I built 25 years ago is still in use today. And so it turned out to be a pretty good move. Um, but that's how Jack became a manager because at some point that project the project became too big and I put Jack in charge of a bunch of 30-year-olds. Let's let's close the Mira story for a second and then branch off to Twitter Square and everything else. What year did Jack leave Mira? Uh, you know, it was 95, 96. I, I, I don't know the exact year. He worked for us basically two full summers and then part of the time when he was in college uh, and then he switched colleges and then he dropped out of college and then, you know, Things went dark for a while. Then he became a massage therapist. Blah blah blah. That started Twitter, and you know the and usual reconnect. The usual, so, the usual yeah. startup path. So what what was revenue at Mira the last year that you and Jack working together on? I guess nineteen ninety six ish. Do you remember? Oh, you know, million or two. Okay, Not, it wasn't a ton. Yeah. So here's my big question: Why wasn't Mira? Why isn't Twitter today Mira? You know, Mira Inc. and it's Twitter DBA. Why wasn't Twitter built inside of Mira? Well, Jack wasn't here. And also Mira had a, a nice little business that made money, but it wasn't innovative. I mean, the innovative part was long gone. And as a matter of fact, I was long gone. Uh, so Jack and I got the company started. Uh, it became this model that could make money. And then we turned it over to other people who managed it and make money. But the model for Mira hasn't changed in 25 years. And 
new ideas sometimes are not welcome at companies that are actually making money. So I don't believe that Twitter or Square or anything else that, you know, here I have done subsequently would have made sense inside that shell. You're now 41, 42, 43, selling these glass blowing objects. The American Express tour we talked about earlier happened. You're now, I believe, 43 years old. It's 2007, 2008. Walk me through how you went from frustration because you couldn't accept an American Express card for your glass blowing work to this bad boy right here. How did that happen? So it was pretty simple. Uh, Jack uh, had been kicked out of Twitter and he came back home for Christmas. And uh, was that you know, fair, he, by the way? You know Jack better than anybody. Was that fair? No, absolutely not. What they did to him was unconscionably uh, terrible. And I was very angry. As a matter of fact, I think I was angrier than he was. And um, I suggested actually that we get even with him. I mean, I was not looking to start another company. I was like, Oh, let's just go mess with these guys that, you know, sort of hurt my friend. And so uh, I would say that my motivations were somewhat negative. Um, and Jack, to his credit, suggested that we funnel that energy into something positive. He said, well, why don't we just start a new company together? And I was like, okay, what do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And so we didn't have an idea. Um, so it was sort of the first two weeks we were kicking around for ideas. We, we knew we wanted to do something with mobile technology, but that was it. And so we, we came up with a couple of ideas, um, one of which uh, we were about to start working on when I went back to the studio, lost the sale, and that was what became Square. So it was sort of this critical moment where you know we already had the team together. And we'd actually already hired our first employee, and he was starting in a week. And we pivoted the company before he even started. So the first day on the job, we said, oh, you know that thing we told you we're going to do? Well, we're not going to do that. We're going to do payments instead. And so now going past that, I mean, how did you know it was going to be, you know, this size thing? It was going to be a radio jack into the phone. Uh, you're okay with it wobbling and not reading because then people get frustrated and become actually more addicted to the, the action. I mean, how did this actually happen? So that was the first fight in the company, um, probably halfway through the first day or maybe the second day. Uh, I said, we need to build a piece of hardware. And Jack thought I was crazy because he said, we don't want to build hardware. Hardware is a terrible business and it'll slow us down and uh, we can just use the camera on the phone. And I said, no, the camera on the phone is useless um, because it doesn't prove anything. In other words, I can take a photo of your credit card and then I can email it to China and they can input that in a Chinese you know, city. That doesn't prove your card's in China. It doesn't prove you're in China. Um, whereas reading a physical mag stripe is something that the credit card industry recognized as something called card present. So I really thought we had to read the mag stripe. Jack thought we didn't. And instead of having a fight with him, um, you know, because we're both engineers, I thought, well, I'll build my solution before he can build his solution. Because I was pretty sure that I could read a card, you know, build a card reader before Jack could build an OCR engine and get the credit card companies to accept it. So um, I just ran off and put together a hardware team and started building the hardware. Um, and by the time I had my product working, it was about 10 days and Jack was nowhere on the OCR. So we just went my way. Um, and the reason the card reader is so small, um, that's, that's a funny story. So it turns out that the square card reader, which I was responsible for designing, is is too small to be a really good card reader. Like if you're trying to read a mag stripe, the card will wobble as you, you know, push it through. And it takes a little practice to learn how to read a card successfully without the wobble. And and I know this. And I actually built a long version of the square card reader. So this is one that's got about a two inch glide path so that there's yeah, no it's, wobble. It's, double, it it's double or triple the size of this, right? Yeah, yeah, it's about one and a half times the size of that. And and as a result, that one read perfectly. But uh, I, I'm also uh, fanatical about testing my stuff. And so I would test both units with people. And I got a very strange reaction when I would test both units together. And that is people always preferred the larger unit because it worked better. But if I tested them separately, in other words, if I showed somebody just the large reader, they were like, okay, whatever, it's reading a credit card. If I showed them the small unit by itself, they were mesmerized. They're like, let me see that. That's too small. How did it do that? Like how did, you know, and, and it was this, it was this attention getter. And so um, 
we made a critical decision at the company to release a card reader that was actually too small to do the job it was supposed to do, but got your attention in a way that nothing on the market had ever done. And I believe that attention was super important. And I, I'm, I still today think it was the right decision to sacrifice some performance for that coolness factor and that moment where you pay attention and realize, hey, wait a second, this is new. And in that moment, we were able to get a lot of people to understand that there's this new thing called Square. Jim, I want to pause for a second. Are you in your office where you have the cigarette case oh, with her God. signature on it? Is it grabbable? No, I uh, I wish. It's it's at my other office. I thought I was worried. I'm like, I'm going to ask him, but maybe it's not there. But the no, it is. It's it. it I'm uh, that stays in my home office because it's one of my most prized possessions. Yeah. Um. I have a an autograph pack of Herb Kelleher's uh, cool menthols. <laughs> I love um, I, I love this part of the story. There's a picture in the book. You guys you guys can see it there, and it's in a ballpoint pen, and it's you know it's original. Yeah. So I met Herb Kelleher, and um, I've met a fair number of famous people. I've never asked anyone for an autograph. Like I've met, you know, <laughs> MVPs of the NBA and I've, I've, I've never really been starstruck until I met Herb Kelleher and he spent a day with me. Uh, and we talked about what would become the book. As a matter of fact, the reason I wrote the book is because Herb told me to write the book. I mean, the whole story of the book was that I had done all this research and I didn't know if the research was valid because all the people that I was studying were long since dead. And Herb was the first person who had lived through the phenomenon I described who was still alive, you know, besides myself. So I needed Herb to, you know, sort of validate it. And it was Herb that essentially said I needed to write a book. Um, but uh, at the end of this, you know, day with Herb, um, I was so starstruck by the guy that I wanted his autograph. And I was riding in his car, and his car, if you can imagine it, is just full. I mean, there probably were 20 empty, cool menthol cartons. And, and you know, my notebook was full. So I just grabbed one of his, you know, cigarette cases. And I said, hey, man, would you, would you mind autographing, uh, you know, one of your cigarette boxes? And so he did. Uh, and I've got a pack of Herb Smokes uh, now, you know, framed in my office. <laughs> I love this. And the reason, the reason I bring it up is because one of the quotes you put in the book that I thought was compelling to dive deeper on is Herb said, listen, for South, in Southwest context, right? Being attacked was very useful to us. It created a, a warrior spirit. And the warrior spirit. As Square starts to take off, you start to be attacked. I mean, obviously, right? You bigger and bigger target, you know, Verifone trying to discredit you. PayPal acquiring a ripoff overseas and IZO for $2.2 billion, Amazon coming to the space and undercutting your 2.75% fee. God forbid if MasterCard and Visa don't accept you officially, you work through these challenges. But your first big challenge at Square must have been the sinking feeling in your stomach when an early advisor you worked with filed a patent for your technology and your name was not on it. When you realized that happened, what went through your head? Uh, I was pissed because that was actually one of my friends. And um, it's funny because the reason he got upset uh, has nothing to do with reality. Uh, and uh, he was he was somebody that I brought in um, to help do some engineering. Um, and he got very upset that we didn't pay him uh, what he thought he was worth. Um, and what we offered him was a very generous offer. It would be uh, close to a billion dollars today. <laughs> you know, if he if he accepted our offer, he'd probably be a billionaire. Um, uh, and he didn't want it. Uh, he thought he was worth more. And and the problem with that, and this was the problem that I think I created, was that I was very deferential. In other words, he he was suggesting a bunch of stuff that we already knew. And suggesting a bunch of things that I'd already thought of and Jack had already thought of. And like, you know, it's like a lot of this stuff is obvious. But if you like, like, like if I say, hey, Nathan, you, you've got a you've got a podcast. You want to promote this on social media. Duh. Would, would you promote this this podcast that we're doing right now? Dude, like I'm going to tell you social media is like, why don't you do that? OK. Oh, by the way, I now own 10 percent of your company. Right, because that's a really valuable suggestion. So it was sort of like that, and so um, he uh, uh, he got uh, 
uh, he got a little out of whack. <laughs> um, so that didn't end well. Um, but uh, it, it was a it was a case where you know we were naive and we were moving very fast. And I trusted a friend to do something uh, and take care of us. Like he said, oh, I'll take care of the patent. Mm. And so um, I didn't understand the subtleties of patents at the time. Was it actually ever though a real threat? Was your name not being on it actually ever a real threat to Square as you gain momentum? I I mean, you you don't know. I mean, like it all worked out great. So I don't think it was. Uh, But in, you know, at the the moment, I thought it was a betrayal and I felt like I'd been taken advantage of and I felt like I'd been tricked. And in fact, that was, you know, that's that's how I felt, you know. Um, So moving it worked out, moving past that sort of first challenge again, you try and take care of that in court in 2010. He comes back at you when you're about to IPO. But let's just say whatever settled there, it's way less than a billion dollars what he could have had if he took your offer back in the early days. If if he had just played along with everybody who was actually trying like the, the, the odd thing was that we were honestly trying to protect him. Like inside the company, that the the discussions were very positive and, and like trying to do things specifically to protect him. Um, uh, and 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 it was um, it was just a case of he he didn't want it. He was angry. I mean, Jim, so. this is a superpower though of great entrepreneurs is they are experts at sponging, cap learning, learning, learning. Even if they already know something, they're very good at pleading ignorance so they can reconfirm their beliefs they already had. So you might ask questions you already knew the answers to which maybe sort of happened here with what you and Jack already knew. The, the counter to this is there's entrepreneurs listening right now that are thinking, oh my gosh, this happened to Jim. I'm going to keep my idea really close and not tell anyone. I don't want someone putting a patent on my idea without my name on it. Then we're screwed. And then they, these are the people that at startup events, they're asking you to sign an NDA to hear your idea. How do you balance getting feedback on your idea with actual business risk? So I put... 99% of the emphasis on getting feedback and 1% on protecting ideas. Love that. Um, I've literally never seen an idea stolen. Okay. I mean, I've seen ideas copied. I see it all the time. Um, but I've, I've never seen somebody outrun the entrepreneur. Um, most people who are capable of running with an idea already have plenty of ideas of their own to run with. And most people who are you know willing to copy are not going to be successful entrepreneurs for a bunch of reasons I go through in the book. So um, I'm not worried about it at all. What I am worried about is lack of feedback. So I've taken the risk many, many times of telling the world exactly what I'm going to do with the full knowledge that somebody might try to do it first. Um, But it's never happened. So fast forwarding, talking about traction by 2012, correct me if this is wrong, Square is passing about 200-ish million dollars in annual revenue. Is that accurate? About that, yeah. About that. Talk to me about some of these other challenges that popped up along the way and how it helped you build the innovation stack. Let's tie this back into the book now, right? So Verifone tries to discredit this and says, hey, this isn't safe or secure. They put a big demo video up on their site. You guys are going, what the hell is going on here? Walk us through that story and how that helped you build your stack and your moat. So that was interesting. Uh, The chairman uh, and CEO of Verifone, uh, who actually took me out to dinner when we were just like a fledgling startup and uh, called me an idiot for uh, probably two hours, Um, you know, uh, just basically telling us that the market that we were trying to serve was unservable and that uh, the people we were trying to serve were unreliable and had bad credit and basically should be left out. And I couldn't argue at the time because he was running a $4 billion company and we were a startup. So I guess in that dinner, he was right. But ultimately, he didn't know that we were not building in his market. And so what happened subsequently is we launched. Um, we were very successful out of the gate. 2010 and was public launch, launch, right? Yeah, 2010 public launch. And then a couple of years later, uh, he basically pivoted their company, at least to partially try to uh, counteract Square. And he did it in a really crass way. He made a, a, a video of him sitting on his couch uh, uh, compl- claiming that uh, squares were not, that, that, you know, that the, the technology we're using were not secure. Um, and it didn't even make any technical sense because what he meant was that the, the signal was not encoded between the uh, read head and the uh, physical microphone jack, you know. And, and and he's correct. It wasn't. But again, like 
I've never seen anybody get a, a listening device, you know, into somebody's headphones. Like you could get, I, I, can, I can put software on your mobile phone uh, and I guess I could hack my hardware, but like to get between those two objects on an individual basis, I mean, that's just not a vector for fraud. So it was a stupid attack, but it was one where, you know, he sort of personally called me out by making a, uh, a claim that, you know, there's a glass blower who's going to steal your credit card information. Uh, so I kind of took that personally. But uh, again, it was, um, it was sort of a non-event because he was so, um, uh, so uh, crass about the way he did it that he uh, ended up uh, upsetting Apple and Apple kicked them out of the Apple store. Was this before or after Steve Jobs asked you and their team asked you to set up a big black box at your office with no windows? Uh, this was after that. So, so we had a we had a um, we had a secret room at Square where there was a secret object um, that we got uh, to play with, um, and uh, yeah, Apple was was very friendly from from the get go. As a matter of fact, I think Apple was extremely tolerant because ultimately our you know our first product was bypassing the dock connector, which was that you know multi pinned thing at the bottom of the phone, um, and. Uh, we went through the hardware jack, and I think that was still the right decision. But uh, you know, it was certainly the first time that had ever been done, and we were worried that Apple wouldn't support us. But they were really open-minded, and they did, and I think they benefited as a result. But uh, you know, there were a lot of moments where we did stuff that we thought was right, even though we knew that there was some large incumbent that might be upset. But ultimately, most of those broke our way. Your early investors will say your guys' pitch deck was one of the best they've ever seen. And they will talk about one specific slide mostly, which is a slide where you list over 140 reasons of why you guys might fail. I doubt you had a big yellow and black Amazon logo on that slide. Walk me through a couple years later when you and your board realize Amazon is entering the market. Take me into that board meeting. I, I should look up the slide. I think Amazon was on it. You at did one have point. it. Okay. Um, yeah, um, but uh, you know, we listed every reason we could think of that uh, that the company would fail, and we openly discussed this during our pitch. So it wasn't a pitch of like, "Hey, we're going to succeed; just give us money." It was like, "Hey, what we're doing has never been done; it might not work, and here's all the reasons we can think of why it might not." Um, so it was a big, uh, yeah, it was basically a big confession that we didn't have a guarantee of success. Um, but certainly, one of the things that we anticipated happening was a major competitor. Um, we thought it might be Google. It turned out it was going to be uh, Amazon. Um, Amazon came after us in a way that uh, was terrifying. They copied our product, they undercut our price, and they added the Amazon brand name to that, along with some customer support that we at the time didn't have. And so we By thought choice. Amazon was going to... Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, we were in a situation where Amazon was looking like they were going to kill Square. And the reason they looked that way is because whenever Amazon had previously done that to a startup i.e. copy their product, undercut their price, Amazon always won. And so we couldn't find any counterexamples of that. So the end result was we looked for a company who we could learn from who had beaten Amazon, and we found that there were none. You found literally a diaper full of shit. Yes, zero. There yes. was nothing. Or diapers.com was... is what I'm referencing, right? I mean, these just yes, Amazon. Yes, diapers. <laughs> And, and as a matter of fact, I, I subsequently, you know, talked to some of the founders at those companies, and uh, they were all basically of the mind that nobody beats Amazon, you know. Um, and I, I met a lot of founders who had had their companies either killed or acquired by Amazon, but I never met anybody who'd beat Amazon. Um, so Square was basically alone. Uh, we kept doing what we were doing. Uh, amazingly, after a year, Amazon relented. And what year was this? And this was about 2015. And it was right, actually, it was right around this time that, you know, so this is, uh, this is about the five-year anniversary because I, I remember it was Halloween. It was Halloween night when Amazon basically said, we're out. Well, they didn't just Square say we're out. Then they start, I mean, they mailed a bunch of these Square readers out, right? With big smiley faces. Yes, yes. So Square, like Amazon was really cool. And, I, you know, I'm trying to sell a book right now and it's really bad form to knock Amazon when you're trying to promote a book. Um, but I do so. But, you know, in, in, in defense of Amazon, um, they were really cool in the way they gave up the fight. They didn't just quit. 
What they did was they said the best thing for our customers is to make them Square customers. So they mailed all their soon-to-be former customers, one of our Square readers, and said, look, if you if you like what Amazon is doing, uh, you'll be happy with Square. So they basically gave us all their customers when they when they quit, which I thought was admirable. I mean, I, that was that reminded me of like the old you know, the old time wars when, you know, officers from the other side were treated well. And, you know, they, 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 there was just there was, a, there was a level of sort of a, a dignity in, in, in how they conducted themselves. So I, I, I don't disrespect Amazon, um, but it was certainly terrifying and it was also bewildering. And the thing that really stuck with me after we beat Amazon was I couldn't answer why. Frustrating. And I felt like some. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was one of these things, uh, Nathan, where I. I mean, I was glad we survived, but I had this weird version of survivor's guilt because none of the people that I had talked to who had their companies wiped out by Amazon had survived, and I couldn't find any contemporary examples of companies that had survived. And so I was like, what the hell happened? Like, what explains this? And I wasn't able to let it go. I, I And I became obsessed with trying to find other examples of companies that this had happened to, and it took me, took me on this two-year search for companies – that had been in other industries where they had been attacked, uh, attacked by really, really powerful incumbents and had survived that. And I was like, what, what is similar about these companies? And it turned out to be this thing. There was no name for it, so I just called it the innovation stack. But these companies all had this pattern. And when I saw that pattern, well, that's what led me to Herb Kelleher because I saw this pattern. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I think I've got an explanation. Like I've seen something. And you know, I'd never heard it described in any book that I'd read or anything that I'd seen. And I was like, like, is this a new idea? And I was like, okay, yeah, it looks like a new idea. And then I thought, oh, wait a second. Okay. Uh, I'm just deluding myself because all of my research was historical. And when you do, when you do historical research, selection bias becomes like overwhelming. You just pick examples that support whatever you think. And because you can cherry pick history, you just convince yourself of anything. Like I can convince you right now that, you know, the sky is always orange because I will just take a picture at sunset, you know, after fires and, you know, major, you know, dust storms and the sky will be orange. And we'll say, oh, the, the, the sky is always orange. If I take the photo at the right time, I can I can I can give you historical evidence of the sky being orange for the last hundred years. You know, well, the only way for me to convince myself that I wasn't delusional was to meet somebody who was still alive, who'd lived through this. And so one of the companies that I'd identified was Southwest Airlines, which was itself viciously attacked by United and Braniff and Texas Inter- – like just a bunch of really nasty things happened to Southwest, and yet Southwest became the biggest airline in the country. So I, uh, I was lucky enough to get uh, – to meet Herb Kelleher, the founder of Southwest, and I, I flew down to Dallas, and I spent an afternoon with Herb, and I basically showed him all this research, and I said, hey, Herb. Like, you lived through this, or at least I think what you lived through was what we lived through. What do you think about this, this thesis that I have? And, and Herb got really excited about it. And he said, he said, I think you're right. It explains a lot of stuff that I lived through, but I hadn't thought of it that way. He said, you need to write this. You need to share this. You need to, you know, don't sit on this information. And, and you got to understand, Herb Kelleher was one of my idols growing up. You know, some people worship rock stars and, you know, sports heroes. Like, like I grew up, you know, seeing Southwest and Herb kick the ass of these airlines that had always just been abusing me. And like, you know, the airline, you, you know, you change your ticket and they take 200 bucks or they, they, you know, like there was this crazy pricing before deregulation. It was just, it was horrible stuff. And I watched this little startup just crush him. And so I worshiped this guy and imagine one of your idols giving you a homework assignment. So I wanted to really impress Herb and, um, I wasn't going to write a book because I thought, oh, business books are boring. Like they suck. I mean, I, I read a bunch of them and they're like, ugh. um, so I thought I'm going to do a graphic novel. I'm going to I'm going to tell the same stories, but I'm going to do you know pen and ink. So I did an actual graphic novel of the whole thing. The whole book was was just where is that and where can we get it? So I mean I I, I did part of it. I, no, I kept it, part of it. Hold it up. It. Hold it up. Oh yeah, flip through a couple. Oh, oh yeah. So this this yeah. If you go to jimmckelvey.com, I will give you a free copy of of the graphic novel. Like it's um 
but I mean, there's a there's a city burning. Uh, there's a murder. Uh, uh, there's, yeah, I mean, there's Nazis, oh, uh, there's wow. nudity. Uh, that's all I need. Little, little nudity and Nazis. I'm sold. Nudity and Nazis, man. Um, that's, <laughs> that, I probably should have titled this thing better. Um, uh, I call it the birth of banking. I think nudity and Nazis would be, uh, would be a better seller. Um, Jim, not, not to yes. bury, not to say not to bury the lead here. Cause I, I don't want to bury this, right? Because basically what you're, what you pitched to Herbert in that meeting was essentially saying something like Amazon thought they could just undercut us like they do with everybody. But you realized that there was a list of things they had to get right. And they had a, you know, 80% shot at one of them, but like a, only a 4% shot at all of them. Right. So explain to me how you thought through the math. Yeah. So what's an innovation stack? An innovation stack is a collection of interlocking inventions. It's one invention on top of the other, which is typically how major uh, leaps are made. Okay, so if you look at most most innovation is a sort of incremental, you know, slight improvements in a product. Okay, um, but then occasionally some company will come around and just upend the whole industry. I, you know, Tesla and automobiles right now. You know, automobiles have been getting r slightly better in lockstep. So you know, for the last forty years, Mercedes and Audi and Nissan and you know all the car makers have been pretty much pr producing the same damn thing, you know. Um, and then Tesla comes along, and yeah, it's a car, but it's a totally different car. It's got no transmission. It's got you know this this you know totally different drivetrain. It's you know electric and blah, all this stuff simultaneously. You know, if you say, well, what's what's Tesla? It's not one thing. It's probably about forty things. Like the way they use capacitors to precharge the batteries so that they can, uh, you know, so, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that the Tesla is doing right now. And it's, it's the same with innovation. Innovation tends to be this series of inventions. And if you, if you sort of unpack the math of how invention works, what you'll realize is that it is, it is created through a different process. And I had to figure out when that process was triggered. And, and it turns out that that process is triggered um, by the inability to copy. What do I mean by that? It means that if you have a problem, your best way of solving it is usually to find somebody else who solved the same problem and do what they did. That is almost always the best solution. And I don't care what it is. Like Would you, you argue virus, is still a great way to start? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not knocking copying. As a matter of fact, like I wouldn't be alive if I wasn't a good copier because like my DNA, which is, you know, responding to all sorts of threats from the environment on a daily basis, you know, has evolved over millions of years of copies of successful DNA, you know. So at, at our very core as living organisms, we are good copiers. But, you know, then you add society and school and all this other stuff and you become exceptionally good at copying your entire life. And then it turns out that the world of copying only fails you when you reach the very edge of what mankind has figured out how to do, okay? So we figured out how to build internal combustion cars. And yet, when you try to go to an electric drivetrain, all of a sudden, we don't have a sufficient uh, set of tools for that. And so to move past you know, internal combustion engines, we needed to have another set of invention. And it turns out that once you cross that line and you move past what can be copied, then innovation becomes this weird necessity and the rules change. And, and, and I looked at this and I was like, oh my God, like I wish somebody had explained this to me when I was, you know, 20 or 15 or 30. Like I, I wish somebody had, 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 had told me where that line was because it turns out that if you're on one side of that line, a totally familiar set of behaviors, which is the behaviors of copying, are optimal and appropriate. But if you're on the other side of that line, those behaviors will get you in deep trouble. And I noticed once I saw this pattern, this was, and this is, by the way, what I brought to Herb. This was, I was like, Herb, like, here's when I get my ass kicked. And, and here's here's why it happened. And like, I can now, I can now point to you at point and say, I should be behaving this opposite way. And, um, I, I use an analogy here and it's, um, it's probably a terrible one, but, um, do you know that every airplane that you fly in when it's landing, 
uh, goes through something called a period of reverse control. And what I mean by this is that, you know, normally if you're flying an airplane and you uh, want to go faster, you push the throttle in. So, you know, speed up the engines, go faster. That happens until you're in the area of reverse control, in which case the throttle becomes like the elevator. It goes up and down. It makes the plane go up and around. So if you push the throttle in, the plane will not go faster. It will go up and you pull the throttle out. It will not go slower. It will just go down. And if you are a pilot, there's this point in the flight where you enter the period of reverse control. And if you're not aware of that, you'll crash the airplane. And I was crashing so many of my companies because I was using the wrong set of inputs because I didn't realize that on one side of the line of innovation, I needed to be doing, in some cases, the opposite of what I would be doing if I was in, you know, sort of on the business side of the line where copying works. And, and I got that insight and I was like, oh my God, I got to do this. So, so that's why we now have a book and, and actually a comic. So diving with. into this 2015, you fight off Amazon by literally doing nothing. You then try and explain it away. You do, you codify it in the innovation stack. Let's use some real examples from Square, right? So Square, I think you guys break what, like 984 million bucks, almost a billion dollars in revenue in 2017. You launched Square Capital, Right. What? Why is Square Capital important for adding another layer to you guys that makes it harder for anyone else to copy you? So Square Capital um, is a uh, lending program that's targeted at very small businesses. If you know anything about banking in the last 10 years, there has been this real, you know, sort of dry spell of loans to small businesses. Small businesses are literally starving for capital. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. Um, but the bottom line is uh, it doesn't matter what those reasons are. The fact is. There are a lot of great small businesses that can't get the money they need to grow and operate. And so we believed that because we were working with these small businesses and could see their you know, daily sales, that we had the ability to trust them in ways that their banks wouldn't. And so we opened Square Capital based on this predication that we could make better decisions because we knew our customers better. And it turns out that was true. And I'm actually not allowed to reveal because, you know, we're a public company now. I can't actually tell you exactly what our numbers are because that gets me in real trouble. <laughs> um, but, but just generally, the thesis of Square Capital is that because we are so intimate with our customers, we can trust them more and therefore uh, give them better loans while losing less money to Defaults. And you did this 141,000 times in 2017. I think a billion eight originated average check size of $6,000 previously on a market that others wouldn't touch. One of the points in the book you argue is a lot of the great innovations are not stealing folks from other competitors. You're actually bringing new people into a market that the market for whatever reason rejected prior. And so you felt like with this data source point of sale, you know, the swiping, you were able to open up this market and open up this capital for these SMBs. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought out the big theme here because people always, you know, say, oh, well, all the great inventions have been invented and there's no more opportunity. And how can, you know, what can I do that hasn't already been done? It, it turns out it, in every market, I believe there's opportunity at the bottom. And if you want to, you know, you want a new business, billion dollar business idea here, I'll give, I'll give a, I'll give a hundred away right now. Um, just look where the market ends. So pick any market, you know, um, the, you know, the market for office furniture, like where does that end? You know, at what point can you no longer buy new office furniture and what would it take to enable somebody to buy office furniture of, of decent quality, uh, at a lower price point? And can you, can you open up a market to more people? And, and the people who do those things, I take office furniture as an example in the book, but, um, you know, furniture is one of the most boring businesses that's been around basically since humans have been, you know, felling trees. And yet there's still this massive opportunity for, you know, a multi-billion dollar uh, world leading company. It's called Ikea um, at the bottom of the market. And Ikea built at the bottom of the furniture market and Square built at the bottom of the payments market and Southwest built at the bottom of uh, the payments market. And, and actually the biggest bank in the world uh, for a while was a company, uh, it's now become Bank of America, but at its beginning, it was called the Bank of Italy, and it built at the bottom of the banking market. So it, there's this tremendous opportunity of the banking at the bottom of the market, but only if you understand that the tools you use for enabling that part of the market, you don't get to copy from the existing market. And that's sort of a central insight. Is you, 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 the good news is you get this massive market, 
The bad news is you have to be original in your thinking and execution. You can't just copy your way to it. And Jim, a pattern I saw in the book uh, that I thought was extremely compelling, I actually hadn't heard of before that I want to pull out, is if you look at all across all the models you give, so yours, it was the experiences, I'm not going to make this thicker. So you watch some people sort of try and pinch the thing and get the current the right way. And some people like held the cart. Ikea, they make you put the furniture together with a wrench. The, the Southwest, when you board the flight, you choose your seat. There's actually a very emotional experience at the beginning of all of these products that start where the prior market stopped. And the emotional experience is not always to make onboarding more frictionless. Sometimes it's to add a little more friction to establish a deeper emotional connection. Is that a trend you saw across other examples you studied but didn't include in the book? Uh, yes. Well, so I mentioned it. There's a there's a little wordplay that I do in the book called adopters versus adapters. You know, early adopters are people who um, uh, use your product first, um, and it's a term of art. Um, I use the phrase early adapters. So by changing just you know one vowel in the word, uh, it takes on a wholly different meaning because many of these early customers to these massive new businesses are actually adapting their buying behavior in comparison to other uh, travel. You know, well, so let's take travelers, for example. So use the example of airplanes because people can relate to getting on, on and off airplanes. Like Southwest doesn't assign you a seat. That's one of the things they do differently. You board as a group. Um, and uh, United and the other airlines do assign you a seat. Now, there are advantages to assign seats and disadvantages to assign seats. But Southwest makes you do it differently. Like if you want to fly on Southwest, you can't have an assigned seat. Okay, they don't allow you to have that. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. But the point is that at the core of all these companies, I noticed that their customers were actually part of their innovation stack. And the customers were behaving differently in ways that allowed those customers to help the business execute in this new way. And, and this is sort of critical because like, if you're going to do something totally new, almost by definition, your customers are going to have to help you. And so you're going to have to have this relationship with your customers where they're sort of a partner and they're going to maybe agree to boarding groups or, you know, not have meals in flight, or uh, maybe they're going to agree to, you know, practice their credit card swipes or, uh, you know, assemble the furniture in their office with a little Allen wrench. Um, they're going to have to do something that's a little different, um, but they're willing to do that. As a matter of fact, if you get them to do this, uh, there, there's a psychological phenomenon known as um, uh, the IKEA effect. It's actually a documented um, psychological phenomenon that says that because people spend more time learning to use your product, they actually like it more. So the fact that it, you know, your bookcase is sort of, you know, wobbly and is likely to kill the cat, you know, if you slam the door, uh, is is actually a positive thing. Um, and it makes people sort of love their Ikea furniture because, you know, damn it, I spent five hours trying to get that thing to stand upright and I still had to, you know, brace it against a door jam. Jim, let's, uh, let's wrap up where you started. 1983, you're 17 years old, you're in college. One of your hacks for learning was offering to take speakers to the airports afterwards. And you said, I always wanted to ask them one question. I'm not going to put that question to you. Jim McKelvey, now that you're one of the most powerful people in finance, Tell me about your inner child. <laughs> well, I mean, my inner child, you know, he comes to work with me every day. Like, I'm, I'm literally still in many ways a kid. Um, and I am – look, I it, – it's, it's, it's very funny because – and my wife and I just had this conversation yesterday because, like, we've, we've made an absurd amount of money, which we're planning to give away because I don't think – serves me or my family to, you know, pass on generational wealth. Sorry, my kids are probably listening. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the point is I still am that kid and I'm still mystified. And honestly, when I do a new business, it's almost exactly the same as it always was. The only difference now is that I can get meetings a little bit easier but that's only you know with my Square founder hat on. Like this, you know, people will meet the founder of Square, um, and 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 then I get to pitch him the thing. So so access has been a little bit easier, and and fundraising, uh, well, that has been easier too. But um, but I still have to fundraise, and I don't fundraise because I couldn't fund things myself. But I fundraise for the validation 
that comes with getting other people to believe in what you're doing. And so, you know, my, my current fund, uh, my, 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 one of my current companies, like I had to pitch Peter Thiel. And the reason I wanted to pitch Peter is that because he is a notorious contrarian investor. Like he called PayPal right. He called Palantir right. He called Airbnb right. He called the Trump election, you know, of 2016, right? Like the guy, the guy has a track record of going against conventional wisdom and being right. Jim, and but so, you know what's so awkward about this? And when I was prepping for this, I go, I have to ask this, Jim this. Peter beautifully took down Gawker. Invisibly's goal is to save journalism. So you either don't like what Gawker was doing and love that Peter did that, or you're just sort of saying, you know what? Peter called it right. We want to involve with Invisibly. Well, I mean, Peter also, I mean, if you read Zero to One, he like openly mocks Square, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, he's ex-PayPal. He's ex PayPal. PayPal acquired no, iZettle, right? He's, He's ex PayPal, but like he goes through and basically says how my, you know, what we invented is is a commodity and is going to be irrelevant. And and actually, you know, one of the things I did in the book is I proved to Peter, you know, he actually gave me a blurb for the book because I basically demonstrate how, you know, he was missing this element. Because look, un until somebody explains to you the innovation stack and the nuance of of how this sort of line between invention and copying is crossed, you can live it your whole life and never notice it. And I mean, literally, you have lived um, on airplanes. I don't know how many airplane flights you've taken. You know, it's probably plenty, like more than fifty. More well, hundreds, easily okay. hundreds. So hundreds. Okay, yeah. so you've taken hundreds of flights. You have literally crossed a line upon which your life depends hundreds of times and never noticed it. And that's that's a line that I've crossed. And you know, and I pointed this line out to Peter, and uh, he gave me a blurb for the book, and then he gave me. You know, millions of dollars <laughs> to risk on a new thing, but yeah, I mean, look, it's it's great to be um, to have been successful, but I would say that a lot of the stuff that I've learned at Square has been unfortunately really irrelevant because everybody goes into invention new, and maybe this is a positive thing. So, if you're a listener right now, here's the th here's the thing to take away. Um, I wrote the book specifically for a person I had in mind when I was writing this. I had a person in mind who is incredibly talented. She's she's hardworking. She's got phenomenal degrees. She's got a master's degree from one of those famous educational institutions in the world. Like she's she is tremendously gifted. And I've watched her time after time come to a problem that is a significant problem that the world has not stopped has not solved. And she hesitates. And that and when she gets to that line where she can no longer be an expert, where she can no longer be qualified. She says, well, I'm not qualified and I can't do this. And my answer to her, which is now a 300-page book, is look, I agree you're not qualified, but nobody on the planet is ever qualified to do something the first time. Okay, So I'm a pilot. I fly planes. I'm qualified. I've taken a ton of training. I'm going to go train tomorrow. Like I literally spend hundreds of hours a year be being a pilot. The first pilot, Orville and Wilbur Wright, who flipped a coin to determine who would go first in the right flyer, were totally unqualified to fly that plane. They were not qualified. They were not trained. They, they couldn't be trained. I mean, they were the first human to fly a plane. You can't be qualified if you're the first human to do something. And so my message to the readers and the world is, look, I don't want everybody in the world to stop when they hit that line. I want them to recognize that line and, and, and be able to make a decision. Okay, look, at this point, I can choose to cross it, in which case I'm going to need this other set of skills, um, which I may or may not have. I mean, there's no guarantee if you cross the line that you're going to succeed. But at least don't approach it and do what my friend does, which is to say, I must always stop here. Because, yeah, you're not qualified, but nobody's qualified to do it. So in answer to your question, look um, – yeah, I've had a lot of, you know, success and I'm still unqualified. Like every time I do something new, if it's really new, none of it matters. Guys, Jim 
McKelvey, Jack Dorsey's first employer when he was 16 years old, fought off betrayal, launching Stripe, launching Square in 2008 after failing to sell one of his pieces of glass blowing work because the lady only had American Express card, fought off Amazon during the same year they IPO. They crossed a billion dollars in revenue at Square and they continue to recognize their innovation stack is the key thing that gives them a real mode building their business. Check out the book on Amazon, the innovation stack, building an unbeatable business, one crazy idea at a time. Jim McKelvey, thanks for taking us to the top. Fantastic. You are so well prepared. I think you are the best prepared interviewer I have ever met. Wow. That's a massive compliment. As a sincere gesture, I would say thank you because as you may imagine, some interviewers don't actually do their homework and it's always so flat because they ask these these sort of I won't say pointless questions, but they are directionless questions. They're, they're, they're questions that, that don't come from a curiosity about the ideas. They're just the, well, tell us what an innovation stack is. You know, you, you gave really good context to, uh, to, I think, I thought, I thought it was a great interview. So thank you. It was totally, totally a pleasure.